This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss how to have a healthier heart with naturopathic doctor Colleen Hartwick. We'll learn about the collateral benefits of intermittent fasting with former dead man, Fred Rutman. We'll talk about cooking with chocolate with registered dietitian, Shauna Lindzen. And lastly, we'll find out how to fulfill your resolutions and eat local with agricultural expert, Peggy Breckfeld. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. According to a new study from the American Heart Association, Reducing total calories may be more effective for weight loss than intermittent fasting. Timing from first meal to last meal was not associated with weight loss in this six-year study, which analyzed the electronic health records of about 550 adults. So, eating less overall and fewer larger meals may be a more effective weight management strategy than restricting meals to a narrow time window, such as intermittent fasting. Six minutes of high-intensity exercise could extend the lifespan of a healthy brain and delay the onset of neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. New research published in the Journal of Physiology shows that a short but intense bout of cycling increases the production of a specialized protein that is essential for brain formation, learning, and memory, and could protect the brain from age-related cognitive decline. This insight on exercise is part of the drive to develop accessible, equitable, and affordable non-pharmacological approaches that anyone can adopt to promote healthy aging. When people are in a negative mood, they may be quicker to spot inconsistencies in things that they read, a new University of Arizona-led study suggests. According to the lead scientist on the study, Vicki Lay, mood and language seem to be supported by different brain networks, But we have one brain, and the two are processed in the same brain. So there's a lot of interaction going on. We show that when people are in a negative mood, they are more careful and analytical. They scrutinize what's actually stated in a text, and they don't just fall back on their default world knowledge. We show that mood matters, and perhaps when we do some tasks, we should pay attention to our mood. If we're in a bad mood, maybe we should do things that are more detail-oriented, such as proofreading. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. I'll be joined by Dr. Colleen Hartwick, ND, in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De-Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label.
Dr. Colleen Hartwick is a licensed naturopathic physician who's been in private practice since 2012 in Campbell River, BC. She has a special interest in trauma as it pertains to physical illness, and as such, her practice focuses on mental health. In addition, Dr. Hartwick is passionate about sharing her knowledge and has been a part-time instructor at the Canadian School for Nutrition since 2015 and recently began publishing educational articles with Naturopathic Currents. Welcome back to the show, Colleen. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. So February, Heart Month, it's de rigueur. We're going to talk about hearts today, okay? Okay. All right. Sounds good. So for those who don't know, what is the impact of heart disease on Canadians? Uh, For your audience, they might not realize that it's one of the leading causes of death for Canadians. So just some statistics to kind of create a sense of how much impact heart disease has on Canadians. One in 12 Canadians over the age of 20 have some version of diagnosable heart disease, about one person every hour, um, sorry, every hour rather, about 14 Canadians over the age of 20 are diagnosed with a heart disease and pass away from it. Uh, We see men being twice as likely to suffer from heart attack as compared to females. You know, 90% of Canadians are in the category of having metabolic syndrome, which is a cluster of symptoms associated with a big uptick in heart disease risk. So uh, it's characterized by obesity, diabetes, and high blood pressure. Is it true, and I I think I read this somewhere, that, that one in three Canadians dies of stroke or heart disease? Is that true? Yeah, you've got that right. So as I mentioned, heart disease and heart attack and stroke, second leading cause of death for Canadians, costing the economy over about $20 billion as per statistics from a couple of years back. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's one point we haven't touched on, and that's the hereditary component of it. My father, when he was my age, had to have a, a quadruple bypass and was an undiagnosed diabetic at the time. And that's sort of, that's part of the reason I entered into this industry. I myself was morbidly obese and lost a bunch of weight because it, it scared the hell out of me. You know, I wanted to make sure that if I had all these cohorts, if I was susceptible to heart disease, that I was going to make myself as healthy as I could be just in case, you know, that heart attack ever came around. Well, good for you for doing the hard work to kind of unpack that family history piece and then also to take a look at you know, what you were doing, diet and lifestyle, that was potentially pushing you down that same path as your father. And this sort of dance between genetics and environment, see it all the time in in practice where we can come into the world with, again, our risk profile based on what our parents dealt with. But then even if there is that genetic predisposition to something like heart disease, there's definitely things that you can do, diet, lifestyle, supplementation, yep. to tip the balance back in your favor. And it sounds like you've done that. Yeah. I mean, I want to touch upon that. But before we get there, maybe we should sort of break down the different types of heart disease, right? Absolutely. So there are four main categories. So the first one is coronary artery disease. And for your listeners, if you don't know what the coronary arteries are, they're the arteries that actually feed the heart muscle that come right out of your aorta. So coronary artery disease is characterized by plaques forming on those coronary arteries. Right, and and the blockages, right? Exactly, which might require a stint or a bypass if they get too obstructed. Mm -hmm. Because if that happens, now the heart muscle is going to be starving for blood and starving for oxygen. 
Then we've got heart rhythm disorders, also known as arrhythmia, so heart beating too fast, heart beating too slow, heart missing the beat or having extra beats. Yep. Then we have structural heart diseases and then uh, heart failure. Okay, so a moment ago we were talking about lifestyle decisions that I've made. Let's start with exercise because that's a big one for me. What are your thoughts on that? Just in general or as it pertains to heart disease? As it pertains to heart disease. Yeah, I mean, the recommendations as a baseline for exercise, they're really achievable for most people, you know, 20 or 30 minutes a day, and it doesn't have to be of high intensity. We see improvements in insulin sensitivity and when insulin resistance happens, so cells become insensitive or don't listen to the message of insulin, that can set the stage for subsequent cardiovascular risk. So a little bit of exercise, improvements in insulin sensitivity, and then from that we can see improvements in in other blood markers like cholesterol and triglycerides. So exercise is great and is a foundation for for good health and in this case, uh, good heart health. I think what people don't realize is the greatest good that you can do is going from doing nothing to doing something. Like that that gets the biggest results. And not everybody has to run a marathon. You don't have to row. You don't have to like lift weights seven times a week. All that stuff's great. But just getting up and going for a walk as opposed to being sedentary is such a huge difference in your lifestyle. Oh, 100%. And, and walking, I mean, there's a fairly low barrier to entry. Just put on a pair of shoes, a jacket if it's cold outside and, and go. And again, we'll see improvements in blood sugar regulation, cardiovascular risk factors like cholesterol and triglycerides. Right. And it's really relaxing for the nervous system. So if there's stress going on, it's one of the, my favorite things to do just to quiet my mind, just to get out. Uh, I go in the forest in my backyard with the dogs and, and it's great and it's achievable. And I think it's a great point and something I talk to patients about often is just finding something that you enjoy doing, whether it's walking or dancing or rowing. Mm-hmm. Because if it's something that you enjoy doing, you're going to make the time to do it. Exactly. It has to be part of your lifestyle. If, if it becomes the chore, then it's just one more thing you have to do. If it's something you like to do, you're going to do it. Exactly. As opposed to dreading and having it be, yeah, another potential source of stress. Like, oh, I've got to go do X, Y, or Z. Find something that you like to do that just so happens to involve moving your body for at least 20, 30 minutes most days of the week. Okay, so this is a hard one for a lot of people, and I struggle with this still, and that is diet. So do you have any tips in that regard? I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with the Mediterranean diet. It's got a really good track record as a framework for a heart-healthy diet. So what Mediterranean diet is characterized by is... Uh, protein predominantly from fish and seafood, lots of nuts and seeds, and then a plethora of fruits and vegetables that are rich in fiber, which help with blood sugar regulation and cholesterol, and lots of antioxidants that, again, help to improve metabolic markers like cholesterol and triglycerides. Okay. And then, of course, supplements can help us. Which supplements do you think are, are most important? Because there's so many. Where do you want to start? Sure thing. So, yeah, supplements, again, they're supplementary. They're in addition to, you know, brightly colored fruits and vegetables in a varied diet, but they certainly have their time and place, especially here in Canada where seasonally we might not get a lot of sunlight exposure. So one of my favorite supplements 
especially in the winter months, is vitamin B, not just for its impact on the immune system, um, but also because it helps to modulate inflammation, can help to reduce a lot of the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, so associated with lowering cholesterol levels, improving insulin sensitivity, triglycerides, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Vitamin K, I usually go hand-in-hand with vitamin D. Both of those vitamins help with moving calcium into tissues where we want to find it, which is teeth and bones are hard tissues. When people are low in vitamin D, vitamin K, there is more of a tendency towards elevations in cholesterol and seeing calcium deposit in areas of the body where we don't want to see it, like on artery walls or, or in muscle or in kidneys. So those are two of my favorites. And then for my patients who aren't consuming fish and even though I live coastally, it does happen every now and again. I get <laughs> someone in who's like so sick of eating salmon, which right. as an Ontarian, it's hard for me to believe, but I understand. But those omega threes that we get from from seafood also really important for heart health. There are other sources of of omega threes, though, right? Like other than fish, if you're going to eat them in a diet. Yeah, absolutely. So the fish actually acquire them from algae sources. So in yep. the realm of supplementation, algae is a great source. If you're, you know, plant-based vegan, and then we've got some other plant-based sources of omega-3 found in things like flaxseed, hemp hearts, and chia seeds. They're slightly different molecules, but can have similar impacts in terms of reducing inflammation and heart disease risk. So, for example, if you're eating those foods or if you're eating, let's say, fish once a week or twice a week, are you, and it has to be a fatty fish, it's not every fish. Are you probably getting enough omega-3s or would you need to supplement in any event? If you're only doing fish, you know, one or two times a week, chances are you're not meeting the benchmark for the two types of omega-3s that are found abundantly in fish, EPA and DHA. Yep. I would typically recommend some supplementation on top of that. Now, if you're eating fish three, four, five days a week, you're probably meeting the threshold for sufficient EPA and DHA again to reduce heart disease risk. Okay. What is coenzyme Q10? Uh, So CoQ10, it's an antioxidant nutrient, and I love that you brought that up because it's also really important for um, energy production at the cellular level as an antioxidant helps to protect the lining of your blood vessels from from oxidative stress and from inflammation, which kind of kicks off the process of, of plaque formation. So really important for functioning and health of of our blood vessels. I know that, you know, some people are on medications which may impact the body's ability to produce CoQ10. What would those be and how does this manifest? Yeah, so typically the drug category where we'll see coenzyme Q10 be depleted is anyone taking a statin, which is a cholesterol-lowering medication. So lovastatin, rivastatin as um, generic names. What they do is they decrease liver production of the bad cholesterol, LDL, mm-hmm. but how they work is they also decrease CoQ10 production. And then how I see that show up clinically for patients who don't yet realize that their statin is depleting CoQ10, they usually experience fatigue, again, because CoQ10 is important for cellular energy production. Um, they might experience things like muscle aches and pains, and that's because muscles require a lot of energy. So if they're starving, and then they start to degrade a little bit, and in its really extreme form, it can cause damage to the kidneys. So 
all that to say, really important um, to talk to your primary care provider if you're taking a statin to uh, moderate your um, cholesterol levels and heart disease risk to talk about CoQ10 supplementation because it's really important. Okay, and, and the last supplement I think we should talk about is magnesium. Uh, everybody, or at least my favorite supplement, or among my favorite minerals because it's involved in hundreds of different uh, reactions in the body from making hormones to making serotonin, which helps us feel calm and relaxed, but also really important for heart health. Uh, in part because it can, sort of similar but different mechanisms than our omegas, can help to reduce inflammation, which improves cholesterol levels, decreases the likelihood of, of that coronary artery disease. And, and magnesium also really impacts our muscular system, both skeletal muscle and heart muscle, and can help blood vessels to dilate. So it can help with blood pressure regulation if we're dealing with someone with uh, high blood pressure. Okay, one last question. I know there are different types of magnesium. So if somebody's not taking magnesium, is there one that you would prefer or recommend that they should take? Oh, that's a great question. And it always depends on what else is going on. So I've got sort of two types of magnesium that I tend to use often. Mm -hmm. One is magnesium citrate. The citrate also has a bit of a bowel effect. And so if I'm working with someone who, say, has some cardiovascular risk, maybe inflammation is high, cholesterol is high, blood pressure is a little high, and they're dealing with constipation, mm-hmm. magnesium citrate is more my go-to in that circumstance versus the other type of magnesium that I find myself using often is either magnesium glycinate or threonate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the glycinate and threonate, they actually cross the blood-brain barrier and have more of more of an effect on the nervous system. So if, again, I've got a patient who's maybe got some cardiovascular risk, plus has maybe high stress, issues with sleep, issues with anxiety, I'll go with either a glycinate or a threonate. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to talk about this really important health condition that's plaguing Canadians. That was Dr. Colleen Hartwick, ND. For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss the collateral benefits of intermittent fasting on The Tonic. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De-Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
Fred Rutman is a formerly dead person as well as a recovering six to eight times a day eater. Via intermittent fasting, he's not only overcome or reversed a multitude of medical issues, he's also lost 60 pounds and 10 pant sizes. Well done. Additionally, intermittent fasting has helped Fred recover from multiple concussions and PTSD. His memoir, The Summer I Died 20 Times, comes out on March 9th, and he's also the host of the Dead Man Walking podcast. Welcome to the show, Fred. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm well, thank you. So intermittent fasting, we've covered it a bit before on the show, but can you tell us what that is and how you came to it? Sure. Intermittent fasting, or it's also known by time-restricted eating, is just a a system of eating where you consume your food in a very limited time period. There's, you know, multiple ways to do it, Mm -hmm. and uh, what works for me might not work for you. So there's a sort of a nomenclature, we call it the timing windows. Yep. So most people go by something like a 16-8 or an 18-6, which is you fast for 18 hours and you have a potential eating window of six hours. That doesn't mean you have to eat for the entire six hours. Right. You just can potentially eat during that time. And is that what you do? I know some people eat certain ways on certain days of the week. That's the way they do it. But do you do the window you just discussed? I do a window. I try to do a one meal a day or OMAD as it's known. My regular fasting is I try to do two longer fasts a week, which is uh, roughly 40 hours. So from Sunday evening to Tuesday lunch and Wednesday evening till Friday dinner. And that's what seems to work the best for me. Other people, that doesn't work great for. So you have to find your own niche in, in the intermittent fasting world. So I know there's some gurus out there who have you know their own unique take and their own stories. Do you follow anybody in particular in the, in the way that you've constructed your intermittent fasting windows? Yes. Initially, I followed Dr. Jason Fung. He's a Toronto-based nephrologist. And he's one of the godfathers of uh, intermittent fasting. I came to him through my cardiologist. I went for a visit, and he, the cardiologist actually threw a book at me. He said, buy this, read this, do this, with a couple of disclaimers. You know, check with your doctors and all that, because you might have to adjust meds or something like that. Mm-hmm. He's very science-based. You can find him all over YouTube. Then I moved on to Jin Stevens who has a New York Times bestseller, Fast, Feast, Repeat. And she's actually written the foreword to my book. So huge respect for her. She follows Mark Matson of Johns Hopkins, Dr. Fong as well, Dr. Tim Spector, who's probably one of the most cited research scientists in the world. And I also follow Rhonda Patrick and Peter Atia and Iran Elonov, who's an Israeli scientist, who's an expert on the gut biome. Okay. So when I hear people talking about intermittent fasting, isn't this just a form of calorie restriction? I can see how people would see that. You know, you all, when you tell somebody you've started, it's always like, oh, no, you're starving yourself. You're starving yourself. Intermittent fasting is pretty much the way we lived for hundreds of thousands of years because we had no regular food supply and our bodies are you know, made to eat intermittently. We're not made to keep dumping insulin into our bodies, and that's what's caused the obesity epidemic. So 
So there is a touch of calorie restriction, but it's more of the body normalizing its hormone production and giving digestion time to work and healing itself, which is the primary thing intermittent fasting does for most people. When you are in your eating window, how many calories are you consuming? Not a clue. I haven't counted calories in 10 years. Okay. Are you eating more than one meal in that window, or is it typically just one? I probably eat like a main meal. Maybe I'll have a snack. Maybe I'll have a dessert. It depends. One of the things that comes up from intermittent fasting is your satiety signals and your hunger signals return to your body. Those get totally interrupted by our traditional Western diets. And it's really amazing when you just have your dinner and you say, wow, I'm actually full. I don't have to keep eating. Okay. So people have talked about the, like the efficacy in terms of weight loss for intermittent fasting. But the reason I brought you on the show today is because your story is a little bit more expansive. You feel that there are other health benefits to intermittent fasting. So what are they? Well, it all starts with reducing your basal insulin levels. Once that starts to happen is there's a domino effect with all your other hormones and it gets you normalized. So your body's working the way it's supposed to work. You switch from running on carbohydrates and you go to running on ketones and that reduces brain fog. Personally, I've reversed my type 2 diabetes within six months of starting to fast. I was off insulin. My sleep apnea has gone away. My asthma has gone away. Every ache and pain in my body has gone away. And because I was a moderator in a 350,000 person fasting group, I know it's not just me. I know some people aren't happy that, you know, it's not a double blind study and stuff like that. But when you have these huge numbers of people reporting the same effect, it's a real phenomenon. So I know women that have reversed polycystic ovarian syndrome and been able to have children because they've started fasting. So a lot of these are non-scale victories. You know, they don't show up on your scale as much as weight loss as things you realize you can now do. You know, I appreciate you relating sort of these anecdotal changes. Like the one that stuck out in my mind that you just sort of listed of, of things that have changed for you is asthma. And to my mind, there is no connection between asthma and, you know, the gut biome and the hormones. Have you sort of looked into the science as to why that might have occurred or not? Yeah, there is some opinion because asthma shows up with a lot of allergies. Yep. And allergies are an autoimmune issue. Correct. So when you're fasting, it normalizes your gut biome. It gets rid of leaky gut for a lot of people, which is the cause of a lot of autoimmune conditions. So once you get rid of the leaky gut, your body doesn't overreact to things. And that's part of why the brain fog goes away because so much serotonin is produced through your digestive tract, not so much in your brain. Mm -hmm. And that plus the running on ketones just makes you think more clearly and you don't have to use as much energy to think. When you're talking about brain fog, what are you talking about? Brain fog is feeling like you're unclear on everything. You just feel heavy. You feel it's harder to think. You just can't think at a rate that you should normally be able to think at. 
maybe a, it's a little bit of depression. I'm saying that with a capital maybe. Yeah. And you'll notice a difference within three or four weeks of starting fasting that the world is entirely more clear to you. And you can start solving problems and thinking of issues that you haven't been able to think of before. When you mention switching over to ketones, isn't that a function of sort of something else, like a different sort of diet where you're limiting the carbohydrates? Isn't that sort well, of one of those diets as opposed to intermittent fasting? It is. You're talking about the keto diet. Yeah. Like, are you suggest? have you married the two? Are you doing keto diet as well as fasting? I don't. I know people that do. They marry the two and it works just fine for them. It depends on your individual health. So some people have to have more carbs. We're all bio-individuals. Yep. And so just doing the keto diet is too hard for them to sustain. But the difference between the keto diet and intermittent fasting is in the keto diet, you're still eating on a very regular basis right. and getting those insulin surges in your body. So you're not able to drain the basal insulin levels, which start all the other domino effects throughout your body. So I'm not saying keto isn't right for people. It's just not the same thing as the ketosis you go into from intermittent fasting. Okay, so I wasn't aware that you have ketosis from intermittent fasting. I didn't realize yeah, that's that. The main, I guess one of the main benefits is you switch over from being a primarily carbohydrate glucose burner to burning your fat, which goes through ketosis and produces the energy which your brain loves. How long have you been doing this? I started in May of 2018. And I have to ask this because I'm a person who struggled with my weight my entire adult life, and I lost a similar amount to what you did. I think you lost 60, I lost 52. Have you been able to do this since 2018, or do you have periods where you simply can't do it because it's, it's just too hard to do the fasting? I... Um, a bit abnormal. So I, I've had some on and off, which is fine because I've had a bunch of surgeries and you can't really go through the fasting process while your body's trying to recover from a major trauma. Yep. But aside from that, I've been pretty regular. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about fasting is it fits your lifestyle. You don't have to fit its parameters. So if one week you want to go out for a family dinner, mm -hmm and it's not your regular window eating time, who cares? Go do it, because food is social, and socializing is so important to us. So you have that one day, you're not falling off the edge of the world, and you just go back to your regular fasting routine the next day. Fantastic. You know, live your life. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Anytime. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss cooking with chocolate on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? 
New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover de-stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. My next guest, Shona Linzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? Good. So for the January-February issue of The Tonic Magazine, which you are a regular contributor to, you provided a fantastic recipe that had chocolate and ginger in it, right? Yes. And we're here today to talk about the combination of chocolate and ginger. So what are some of your favorite combinations when you're making chocolate treats? This is apropos of Feb. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It's interesting because I like treats with lots of flavor. I'm not just a plain chocolate person. Yep. And so I like anything that combines chocolate and nuts. And one of my favorite snacks, like if I'm craving something after I eat, is grabbing a piece of crystallized ginger and a little piece of chocolate and eating them together. Hmm. It just does something, you know, it, it just, you know, hits my satiety center. It makes me happy, increases my dopamines. Okay. Is this an actual physiological change or is this the endorphins of eating something that you really like? I think it literally just calms me. I don't know why. And I I would suggest that you try it. Like some people, like my husband, for instance, doesn't love a lot of ginger in yeah. cooking, like in savory foods. But this is different. Once you soak the ginger in sugar, it really changes. It's like a spicy, sugary sensation Have you tried crystallized ginger, just eating a piece of it? Naomi bakes with it, but I haven't had it like straight up. Is there still the heat of ginger in it? Because ginger... There's still the heat. And it's interesting because I find the one that is sliced candy ginger, to get specific, doesn't taste as good as the one that is in cubes. I think it's a different type of ginger that they make it into cubes rather than the sliced ginger. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have that really like strong quality that the sliced ginger has. It's a bit sweeter. And it's just a great way to get ginger in every day. It's interesting. When I was younger, I would not eat ginger. And like, oh, really? l- like many foods, like I've known my wife since she was 12 and I was 14 and we've been together since I was 20 and 18. So she knows that when I was really young, I had a very limited palate. And oh. now I eat probably 20 times the things that I would eat when I was younger. And I don't know whether it's my taste buds <laughs> that, are, that are numb or getting old or it's just I've developed a taste. And, and I actually like ginger now and I never, never would have eaten it in my 20s, for example. Isn't 
that interesting. I find that lots of foodies have a past like that in terms of not eating a lot of variety when yeah. they're younger. And then when they get older, their taste buds continuously develop. It's crazy. Mature. Like the things that I eat now, I never would have touched. I mean, there's a long list. It's a different show. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So you're the dietitian and nutritionist. Are there benefits to eating chocolate and ginger? I mean, we've, we've covered chocolate before, but maybe we should just sort of summarize. Yeah. So it's interesting. So yeah, we've covered chocolate a lot. And lo- most people know that the darker the chocolate, the better, like yeah. 70%. You don't have to go higher than 70% unless you really want to. Yeah. I like kind of between 50 and 70 percent cocoa. And it, all that means is the higher you get in the percent, the less sugar they're adding. So milk chocolate is probably about 30 yeah. percent if you look at the percentage of cocoa solids. And that just means there's more sugar. So if you do choose a higher percentage chocolate, you're getting more antioxidants and more minerals like potassium and phosphorus and fiber because it comes from a cocoa bean. So there are a lot of good qualities to chocolate. And health-wise, it could potentially lower your blood pressure. It's pretty good, right? Then when you couple it with ginger, like we were talking about, adding ginger, Naomi, for instance, makes a chocolate bark and cuts up the candy ginger and puts it on top, for instance. Mm -hmm. So ginger has a lot of medicinal kind of properties. So one of them that you may have heard of is reducing nausea, aiding in digestion. It has anti-inflammatory components to it. So it could help with symptoms of joint pain, like in rheumatoid or osteoarthritis. There are studies in terms of diabetes and lowering your blood sugar. So ginger does have some claim to fame when it comes to medicinal properties. So how much ginger would you need to take, though, to have any sort of effect, a medicinal effect? Not much. Like if you look up the amount, like even half a teaspoon of fresh ginger a day. So there's actually a difference between fresh and dried ginger. From a health perspective, you mean? From a health perspective, as well as a flavor and a taste note as well. Yep. So let's kind of talk about that a little bit. So fresh ginger is definitely more pungent and strong and has more of a complex flavor than ground ginger. And all ground ginger is, is it's the fresh ginger dried and pulverized into a powder. Mm -hmm. But the ground ginger doesn't have the essential oils that the fresh ginger has and less of the actual component, which is called gingerol. That's the chemical structure. Hmm. So what I would say is try to have more of the fresh than the dry. And I think most people that are ginger lovers would use the fresh more than the dry. Because dry you normally use if you're making like a ginger molasses cookie or, you know, that type of thing. See, I don't don't bake. I would use the fresh ginger in savory applications. That's where I tend to go. Yes. 
And it actually, it's interesting because that one's not as stable, like the, you know, heat stable. The dry one's a bit more stable. And let's say a recipe calls for ginger, right? You can put, like, let's say you don't have ginger on hand. You can put any of the warming spices, like you can put cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, And as you mentioned, in the tonic this month, in the January-February issue, I provided a recipe that has all of that in it, including chocolate. So it's fresh ginger, dates, and if you're looking at what's trending this year, dates are also on the trending list. I'm way ahead of you there. I've been putting medjool dates in my oatmeal for probably six, seven years. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah. I love them. Do you know what I'm actually doing with those medjool dates as well? I'm adding them into salad dressing. For instance, if I'm putting it into the blender as sugar. So giving it a little bit of a sweet kick as well as it has that kind of caramely depth to it. And think about a sticky toffee pudding made with dates. Naomi has been making that for you. It's one of my favorites. Oh, really? Uh, Do you use the date syrup? Did you ever use that? Yeah, it's called S. A, what's it called? Say, Saga or no, uh, Saba, or, Saba or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Silan maybe. So yeah, the date syrup is delicious. So if, let's say you're making something, you've run out of molasses, use some date syrup. I have a little trick too with your date syrup. If you have date syrup in your cupboard, yep. mix it with tahini. Yep. Have you done that before? Yeah, over roasted carrots. It's phenomenal. Oh. Jamie, it's heaven. So you get the sweet, you get the nutty, really nice. So tahini and date syrup. And we're talking about ginger and chocolate. You can tie that into different desserts, like mixing the date, the or date syrup with anything chocolate and ginger. Those combinations, those are really rich together and work really well. All right, so last part of the interview, let's just go over some applications for ginger where you like to put it into your recipes. So I can go sweet or savory, right? Yep. My favorite new mocktail has juiced ginger. So what you do, this is easy. You guys can just remember this, and I want you to try this. Lots of people are trending in terms of trying to reduce their alcohol consumption, like dry January, if people have heard of that. Yep. So a mocktail with ginger, you take ginger and you either juice it if you have a juicer. If you don't have a juicer, you just puree it and squeeze really hard with your hand the juice out or put it in a cheesecloth. And you take one tablespoon of the ginger juice, mix it with two tablespoons of freshly squeezed lime juice and a teaspoon of simple syrup, or you can put in stevia or agave, any of that. Mix that up with a whisk, put some ice cubes on, pour in some sparkling water, and rip some fresh mint leaves, and you have got the most delicious mocktail you will ever drink. Excellent. I've got one, same flavor profile, but it's a savory dish. So I have been making butternut squash soup with coconut milk, lime, and ginger. There you go. With a little bit of coriander. and Yeah, delicious. So ginger works extremely well with citrus. 
Yeah. So you can make like a, a lemon ginger tea with some fennel seeds. On my Instagram, I actually have a reel with a recipe and putting fresh mint in there. So when you look at recipes, like savory recipes, like stir fries or yep. anything that has glazes on it, ginger, um, and these are usually East and South Asian or Caribbean type cuisines, delicious when you pair ginger with garlic, with any citrus, with a fresh herb. It really works well. One more tip that people may want to use is adding slices of ginger to your coffee when you brew it. Hmm. Have you ever done that? Have not. Yeah, some people do cinnamon. And remember what we just said that you can put cinnamon in exchange for ginger. It goes, you know, it's kind of in the same culinary land. So slice up ginger, brew your coffee with it. Or you can put a little bit of the powdered ginger into your coffee just to give it that little bit of depth and spice. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. For more information about Shauna, visit shaunalinson.com. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Peggy Breckfeld is a Northern Ontario dairy farmer and is currently serving her third one-year term as president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture and has been a member of the OFA Board of Directors since 2011. Provincially, she is a board member of the Agricultural Adaptation Council and enjoys promoting the importance of agriculture and local food to the provincial politicians, municipalities, students, and other community groups. Peggy and her husband, Gert, own and operate Woodstar Farm, a 70-cow operation just west of Thunder Bay. Welcome to the show, Peggy. How are you? Very good. So this time of year, a lot of people are making resolutions. Some of them have probably already broken them by now, and a lot of them are usually tied to diet and you know getting healthier. 
So why is local food important to a healthy diet? Well, it's one piece of a healthy diet, and locally grown food just tastes fresher and better, and it often offers more nutritional value. The sooner you can eat the food after it is picked, the better nutrients you're going to get. They lose less nutrients in transit if you can find fresh. And Ontario grows about 200 different products and foods, all great flavors and tastes, and all part of a healthy diet. So reach out and look for something local. So how do Ontario farm products stand up against the new recommendations of Food Canada's guide? Well, the whole key of Canada's food guide really is about balance and finding all the pieces and not just one particular category. So you can find all the pieces in Ontario. Your milk products, your cheeses, your yogurts, just that glass is there. You have the protein section, which we grow beef and poultry. We even grow uh, peanuts and legumes. So lots of things there in the protein side. Fruits and vegetables, though, that should be about half of your plate, according to Canada's Food Guide. And I think we have some amazing variety. Everything from that asparagus to carrots and your potatoes and root vegetables, your fruits growing on coming from the trees and berries and such. There's all those varieties. And then, of course, you have whole grains. And you see the wheat fields occasionally if you get a chance to drive in certain corners of this province. And especially in the fall, they're beautiful, the yellow waving in the wind. So you mentioned fall. Now we're in winter. And I think one of the drawbacks to eating local is, of course, you know, we're not capable of growing necessarily throughout the year. Is that an issue, sort of trying to eat locally in winter? I think we probably miss some of the best flavors if we only think we can get it when it's coming straight off the field. Carrots and potatoes, onions, they all store very well, and you can find those still in your grocery store. Apples as well, squash, dairy and meats and poultry are always in season. And I also think you can find some really great fresh frozen products, uh, especially your vegetables and canned goods, whether it is peaches, or pears, or even some lovely things like pickled beans and asparagus and stuff. Just got to keep your eyes open for them. Okay. How can people identify the source of their food? Like, how would you know if it's grown locally or not? It's all about reading labels. Uh, In the produce aisle, you're going to look for the Foodland Ontario symbol. When you're uh, looking at packages, you want to look for the origin of, of the product. You can look online at the Ontario Processing Vegetable Growers website for some lists of Ontario processors. And then a lot of it comes down to asking good questions. Ask the butcher about where the meat is coming from. And it can be that you're actually going to a farmer's market and maybe there's a potential you can talk to the farmer himself. Or herself. Or herself. (laughs) I should know. Right, exactly. Exactly. Unless Gert does all the talking, but I, I sense that I sense that's not the case. Oh, we do our share, each of us. I'm going to go off script a bit and ask you, like when we're here in Ontario with the milk board, isn't all our milk products, aren't they all locally sourced? Yeah. So if you take a look on the packages, you'll find the little blue cow. Those are Canadian products. And so do look for those. I know that in my area, 
if you were up in my corner of the woods, the code for my local dairy is, I think, 1503 or 1305, but those four digits, you can can find those things. And there are some actual on-farm dairy processors, so you can look for something special to your Sheldon Creek dairies and such. I think that most of the products you're going to find has that blue cow on it, and I'm pretty proud of the sector I'm a part of. So you have a certain number of cows. Like I presume what happens is you milk the cows and then a truck comes by and takes it off your hands to be processed, or are you processing the milk on site? Thunder Bay has two processors, one cheese, one milk and yogurt and a few other products. On my farm, the milk truck comes every second day and picks up our milk and brings it to the dairy. A farm my size, approximately 75 cows, uh, ships about 30 liters per cow. So do the math wow. <laughs> per, day, yeah. per day. So we are one of many farms that provide milk to you in the store in boxes or bags, depending what you buy. But it is a pleasure to bring you a quality product. Other than the freshness, what are some of the other benefits to eating local? You know, it it really does make a difference in your local economy. We talk about the food value chain, and one of the great things in Ontario is you'll see that from field to fork, you're about 750,000 people employed in food and agri-food businesses. Those are the person who picks the fruit to the ones who package it to the transport and the person who made it into a loaf of bread and even the restaurant that might serve it on your plate. It's a significant portion of our economy, about $47 billion. And outside of that, you really are making a difference in rural Ontario, helping support others in your province. Okay, so considering, you know, we're in the middle of winter, what are some of your favorite off-season foods that are local? So I personally, I am a big milk drinker and cheese, but I also love a smoked sausage. That is nice. And you can cook that or buy it already cured and put that on a a nice charcuterie board with some dried apples that are available year-round. I think that a lovely meal includes potatoes and some kind of protein. We usually have a veal or a beef that's grown locally, and also roasted vegetables. I roast beets, carrots, onions, and squash. I cut them into big chunks, and I put them in a a nice roasting pan with butter and uh, maple syrup sprinkled on top, uh, melted butter and maple syrup, and a little bit of salt and pepper, and you bake it for about an hour at 350, and it just looks beautiful, and it's one of my favorite meals when uh, everybody's at home. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Colleen Hartwick, ND, Fred Rutman, Shauna Lindzen, and Peggy Breckfeld. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. 
If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.